All right. If you will, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to take a four-week break from the book of Acts. Don't worry. We will finish the book of Acts in January. Um, I've got an idea for what we're going to be doing um, throughout 2022. But this is Christmas time. And here at Red Cross around Christmas time, we like to celebrate with the season of what we call Advent. Now, I know for some of you, Advent may be familiar if you've been a part of this church. Um, but for some of you also, it may not be familiar. You may not know what Advent is. Advent really just means coming or arrival. And the reason why we celebrate Advent is it is a season in which we are able to set aside in the hustle and bustle of Christmas because it gets busy, right? We got so many parties we got to go to. We got so many gifts we got to go buy. We got so many things we got to, we got to do. And before you know it, December 26th is here. And it, December 26th is like the most depressing day out of the year because Christmas is gone and you got another 365 days until it's back and no more elf or hot chocolate or die hard, whatever you want to do on Christmas season. And, uh, and so Advent is a season in which we get to set aside and slow down. And as we look at the first advent of Jesus, the first coming, the first arrival, we build an anticipation for the second coming of Christ, the second advent. And so that's the purpose of advent. We, we slow it down and we take a season in which we look at what the true and real purpose of Christmas is. And so this year we're going to look at a series that I'm titling The Real Christmas Story. Uh, and what we're doing, me and, me and Pastor Leto actually are going to be breaking down Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and look at the real Christmas story of what this looks like. And so let's go ahead. Um, if you're there at Philippians 2, say word. Fantastic. Three of you brought your Bibles. Go ahead and stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. I'm going to read, and I know it's probably not on the computer. I'm going to read all of 5 through 11. Um, and, and, and I told Wesley just to do five through six, but just to have it in context, let's do five through 11 and just, let's just take a, take a look at it. So verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May the Lord add a blessing upon His Word. Let's pray. Father God, You are so good and gracious. And Lord, this season of Christmas may bring joy to some and it may bring hardship to others. So God, I pray that as we go through this series, as we go into the message this morning, that You will help us to see the true and real story of Christmas. We're thankful that You sent Your Son to die on our behalf so that we may be redeemed. Help us see that this morning. We ask this in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So the title of my sermon this morning is The Deity of Christ. Now, if you don't know what the word deity means, it's just God, the divinity, the Godhood of Jesus. Now, Jesus, as, as we believe, Jesus is truly man and truly God. He's all of it. It all encompasses who he is, truly man and truly God. And today's message, I want to take a look at the truly God part of Christ. And so here's the main idea. We're going to go ahead and jump into it. The main idea I've got for you this morning is this. Because he is God, only Jesus could bear the sins of his people. Because he is God, only Jesus could bear the sins of his people. Now, when we look at this passage in context, verses 5 through 11, Paul is writing this to the church of Philippi, and he's writing this in in a manner of helping them see other people as more important as they see themselves. If, if, if we look at verses 1 through 4, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And then we go to our passage today. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have, have this mentality that Christ has. He did not count himself more than others. He counted others more than himself by stepping down from glory into humanity, living a perfect life, dying the death that we deserved to purchase and redeem, as you saw earlier in the New City Catechism, the church, the people of God. So the main idea, because He is God, because Jesus is truly God, only Jesus could bear the sins of His people. And that's the first part of the, of the real Christmas story. Yes, when we look at the Christmas story, we are, we are amazed at reading about Mary and Joseph and the story of them having to come to Bethlehem and then Jesus being born and the shepherds coming. And then a couple years later, can I say this? A couple years later, a couple years later, the wise men came. So at the nativity scene, the wise men are not there. If we read, if we read our Bibles correctly. Sorry, I got a pet peeve about that. If I walk by somebody's nativity scene and the wise men are standing there, I seriously knock them out of the way. I'm not joking. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But that's the Christmas story that we grew up with, right? Or we may have grew, we may have grew up with uh, the, the other, the Christmas story of Santa coming on the roof and then the, the click, click, clack or whatever. And anyways, today, the real Christmas story, the real Christmas story is about Jesus coming down from glory, taking on humanity, dying, rising again, ascending, and being exalted. That's the real Christmas story. So because He is God, only Jesus could bear the sins of His people. So this series, I'm hoping, is going to be doctrinally heavy. That's, that, that's our intention. Today, I wanted to talk about the deity of Christ, the, the, the divinity of Christ. Pastor Leto next Sunday is going to preach on the humanity of Christ. We're going to look at verse 7 next week. 
How Christ has taken on flesh. So I'm not going to say anything more about that because I want him to take that. But today we're going to specifically look at the deity of Jesus. Number one, he eternally has been God. He eternally has been God. For ever and ever, there never was a time where Jesus was not God. Jesus eternally pre-existed before his birth in that manger. In fact, Jesus was part of creation as creator. Never was there a time where Jesus wasn't. He has eternally been God and he eternally will be God. So when we look at Philippians 2, 6, who though he was in the form of God. He eternally has been God forever. Now there are religions out there who even claim to be Christian that will say that Jesus was not always God. Some will say that he is a little G God. Some will say that he is the angel Michael in flesh. Some will say that, 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 that he's never eternally existed, that he was just a, a good man, a good teacher. But here, through God's word, he eternally has been God. John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning, when? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Who's the word? Jesus. We learn later in John 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John's intention in verses 1 through and 1 through 4 is to show us that Jesus has existed eternally and has been God eternally. Jesus said in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Even before Abraham was born, I am. Not before Abraham was born, I was there. Before Abraham was, I am. He is saying, I am, as the title of God, that I have always existed and always will exist. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Why? He has eternally been God. When we say Jesus was born in a manger, that was not when Jesus was created. That was not when Jesus first started. When we see Philippians 2, 6, he was in the form of God. In other words, when we look at the Greek word for form, it's just the same nature as God. The same essence. He eternally has been God. The second person of the Trinity. In Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is beautiful. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Church, Jesus has eternally been God. For some of you, this is Christianity 101, but for others of you, it may be the first time you're hearing this, hopefully not under my preaching. But you may be here this morning, you've never been taught that Jesus has eternally been God. That, oh, when he was born, that's not the first time that he existed? No, he stepped down from glory. I'm one of those theologians, if you want to say, that believes whenever in the Old Testament it talks about the angel of, of the Lord, I would be okay with it being Jesus. That that is the presence of Christ there. Because he has eternally existed and has eternally been God. Number one, not only has he eternally been God, number two, he's equally with God. Equally with God. He's not of, when we say the second person of the Trinity, we're not saying that like he's of second importance or second in power or that he even, even has this subordination under the Father. He's equally with God. He was in the form of God. And when we look at the second half, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I want to break this down. I, I know that that, that that part of the verse sounds like, what? Like, what does that mean? That he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, first, I want to say he's equally with God. It, it's, it's not saying that he's not Equal to God. He is. John 5, 18. It says this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is this is why they crucified him. This is why they had a problem with him, because according to to Judaism, according to the Pharisees, even it was blasphemy to even claim that you're God. And this is what Jesus was doing. He wasn't lying. I am God. I'm equal to God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's equally with God. And number three, he did not exploit himself as God. That's what that, that's what that verse means. That he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto, clung to. He did not count his equality with God as something to exploit over people. And we're going to talk more about this next week. When we look at the humility of, of Christ taking on flesh. But when we start here, we start where he is. That he's on the throne and he's wearing a crown of glory. And he's ruling and reigning as part of the Trinity. But he did not exploit his royalty. Yesterday, I had to, I had to do a project for my missions class um, in seminary. I had to have a worldview conversation with somebody of a world religion. It couldn't be Mormonism. It couldn't be Jehovah's Witnesses. It couldn't be any of those. It had to be like Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, you know, religions like that. And so I was like, I live in rural Stanley County. 
Now, like, they wanted us to like end up in a coffee shop and by God's providence, have a conversation with somebody into the coffee shop. Buddhists and Hinduists and, and, and all them, they, they don't they don't come into into our coffee shop. They, they're not really predominantly in this area. So I ended, I ended up having to call a Buddhist temple and uh, I was like, hey, I got to have a conversation with somebody. I'm very curious about your about your faith. And it sounded like, uh oh, you know, I didn't I made sure to tell them I wasn't. a. You know, I, I didn't say it, but I, I made sure to not say that I'm a pastor. I was just like, I need to talk to somebody. Can, can I just have a conversation? And, and this, this lovely lady named Lauren was, was able to have a Zoom call with, with me. Well, when, when we started talking, I, I, I told her, I was like, look, I'm going to be transparent with you. Um, I'm a Christian pastor and, and I know what I believe. I'm doing this as an assignment. You were my last minute, like go to because I couldn't find any Buddhists in my area. And so we had a good, good conversation. Long story short. Come to find out, Buddha was once a prince. He was once in royalty. And what he ended up doing is, is he stepped down from royalty to become like a peasant to find a way to end all suffering. And he went out into the jungles and, and all that and he meditated and he failed in some areas, but then he got better in others. And according to Buddhism, he encountered enlightenment. That's the goal of Buddhism, to enter nirvana. Okay. And this lady actually told me that the Buddhist view of nirvana is better than the heaven of Christianity. And I made it clear to say, I don't think you truly know what heaven is. But we had a great conversation. Through that... Through that conversation, I, I shared with her how in Christianity, we believe Jesus is somebody who eternally existed on a throne. Not as a prince, but as king and as God. And he set aside his crown to come down, to take on human flesh, to not just find, not, not, not just to provide a way to end all suffering, but to provide a way to where we can be redeemed from our sin and shame. And so I, I try to share, there's a little bit of comparison there. And then she, she, she was a little adamant to, to tell me that, well, Buddha existed before Jesus. I was like, no, no, Jesus created Buddha. <laughs> like Jesus told Buddha, like, I'm God. <laughs> so, Jesus did not exploit himself as God. He did not see his royalty as a means to cling to, to, because, and let, let, let me kind of lay it out in layman's terms. He did not look at us as a sinful and lost and broken people headed on a destruction to hell and think to himself, you know what? I'm going to let them do them. I'm good. I'm ruling and reigning. I don't need anything. We have to understand the self-sufficiency of God. He does not need us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our service. He's self-sufficient in himself. He, he's a happy introvert, if you want to think about it like that. He's happy in himself. But Christ, as God, did not look at his throne and say, you know what, I'm comfortable, I'm just going to let them do them. Instead, this is where a little bit of the application comes. That's why you're like, wow, we got through three points pretty quick. I want to apply it. Instead, he 
He laid aside His crown of glory to step down into humanity to take on a crown of thorns on behalf of you and me. When we look at Christmas, when we celebrate this time, we are reminded, as we should be reminded every day, that our Lord and Savior humbled Himself by setting aside His crown, setting aside His his, his, his royalty even. He didn't, he didn't relinquish it. He didn't give up his divinity. He just didn't cling to it. As in, this is what I'm holding on to. No, he came down as truly God in flesh. I mean, that, that shows compassion. That he's willing to give up the security of heaven. That he's willing to give up not having to suffer and come down and suffer. When we see the divinity of God, we see we don't see a king that we would normally see. We see a king who is willing and able to lay it aside to to give it up for a season to come down and suffer. Y'all have heard stories of where kings end up coming down and ended up in peasantry of some of some type. Uh, maybe a king incognito, if you will. Uh, I've got two favorites. One of them is Strider. If you've ever read Lord of the Rings, Strider, who we, we, we read about in the first book of the Lord of the Rings, Leto, there's three of them. The first book of the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, as an inside joke. Um, we, we meet Strider, who is this swordsman. He's this warrior. He's this guy that you want to be good friends with because if, if bad people come, if evil people come, you want his sword by your side. All right. Strider's that kind of guy. Well, we come to learn later that Strider is actually a king who is trying, who, who, who needs to be put in his rightful place as king. My second favorite story of a king coming down into peasantry is King Couscous from the Emperor's New Groove. I'm talking about where he turns into a, was it a llama? Yeah. He comes down and he's just not happy, but he learns of the people that he needs to be over. But the problem with those stories is it doesn't match up to what Christ did. These stories are about kings who lost their kingdoms. Christ never lost it. These stories are about kings who need to understand and learn who their people are. Christ came down because He knew who His people are. Imagine imagine what Christ knew about you. Your sin, your shame, your darkest secrets only you know. Maybe those things that you've never told anybody about, those dark thoughts that you've had. Christ knows them all. Knows all of them. He knows the sin you're going to commit and He knows the sin you've already committed. But yet, in all of His glory and splendor, this King lays aside His crown of glory to take on a crown of thorns so that He may purchase you. He didn't see anything good in you. Nothing. 
He didn't draw you close to him because he thought, you know what? I could really use an Evan Early on my side. That's not what he thought. No, God, in his infinite grace and mercy, steps down from his divinity. Truly God, still, no subtraction. He's still truly God. But he takes on human suffering because he wants to redeem you. Because he wants to save you. See, in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This wasn't obligation. This was willingness. This was love. A king who steps down off his throne to purchase you by his blood. That is love. What we see through this is God is not a grasper. He doesn't grasp onto his divinity and just doesn't want to let go. He's a giver. God is not a grasper. He's a giver. And he gives ultimately the ultimate gift, the gift of himself on the cross. Our rescue of sin and death required that Christ would come all the way down to where we are. It required for him to step off of his throne. There was no other way. Christ stepped down for you and me. He left heaven to lay aside his crown of glory and to receive the crown of thorns that we may be rescued from sin and judgment. And church, that is the, that is the real story of Christmas. That the greatest gift was not laid under a tree, but was laid on a tree. That the greatest gift we could ever receive was one that was given not because we deserved it or that we earned it, but that He freely wanted to give Himself to us. You ever bought a gift for your worst enemy? I'm not talking about husbands buying gifts for your wives. Don't bring that up. But have you, no seriously though, have you bought a gift for your worst enemy? You ever done that? A good gift, not a prank, but a good gift. No, probably haven't. God gave his life, Christ gave his life for his worst enemy. The king came down to where we are, from on high to down low. For us. So this Christmas, I know this Christmas might be different for some people. You might not get the gift you've been asking for or wanting for. My son is wanting a game system that is used. You don't buy them brand new. We're not going to find it more than likely. Sorry, Jaden. He's probably not going to get the gift that he wants. But the greatest gift that I can give my kids, the greatest gift that I can give my wife, is not even the gift of myself. I can give my time. I can give my money. I can give my presence. My wife doesn't care about my presence. But I can give them the love of Jesus. And I can show them who Jesus is. 
The greatest gift that we can give somebody this, this Christmas, the greatest gift we can give somebody today, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the one who stepped down from on high to come down low to where we are. It takes a lot for someone to do that. Because He is God, only Jesus could bear the sins of His people. That's the true Christmas story, guys. You never thought Christmas would encounter Easter, right? But it does. Christ has eternally been God. He is equally with God, and He did not exploit Himself as God. And we praise God for that. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that You would help us this morning to see Your true self, Your divinity, God, I pray that you would help us to understand and to be in awe of how your Son laid aside his crown of glory to receive a crown of thorns. And he did this that we may be rescued from sin and judgment. God, help us. Help us to be in awe of that this morning. We ask this in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.